0: Well this record store day in America, and this year on that day in the Little Five Points neighborhood, Atlanta punk rock history took place. The past, present, and future of Atlanta's punk rock scene gathered in the parking lot behind the star bar as Neon Christ, Upchuck, and Gigi King created what music writer Chad Rafford called punk rock catharsis after four intense years of socio-political tumult brought to a head by the pandemic. Randy Gu, Rose Library curator of political, cultural, and social movements, and host of Rose Library Presents Atlanta Intersections, joins us for a crossover episode that kickstarts a three-part series of interviews with the bands that played that show and others who have helped shape Atlanta's punk history. I'm your host, Lolly Terrell, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives.
1: Welcome, thanks for joining the conversation. Today we're gonna to dive into the Rose Library's Atlanta Punk Collection with Greg King and Jesse Smith of the Carbonus, Atlanta punk legends from the 2000s. The Carbonas' loud, fast, and short formula saw them release three albums, six singles, one singles and rarities album, and tour the US and Europe before the band called it quits in 2009. Since then, Greg is friend of G.G. King and Jesse started Gentleman Jesse. Both G.G. King and Gentleman Jesse released new albums in 2021. Greg, Jesse and I are also joined by Atlanta music writer Chad Radford. Chad is the official music guest co-host of the Atlanta Intersections podcast and he always brings articulate insights about the Atlanta music world to the podcast and RadATL.com. Let's get started. I'm going to ask y'all to introduce yourselves and have you tell us about your involvement with the Atlanta
2: music scene.
1: We'll go alphabetically, so Greg, you're up first. No
2: pressure. No pressure. My name is Greg King. Uh, I play in a band called Gigi King. I previously was in a band called the Carbonas, as well as many, many others that I won't get into at this point. But uh, So I've been playing music in Atlanta for... A little bit over 30 years probably started when i was a wee preteen.
3: my name is chad radford and i'm a music writer uh who's been writing about atlanta music since about 1999 writing about punk rock uh, indie rock electronic music hip-hop whatever comes across my desk i try to uh, engage with it in some kind of way that's at least meaningful to me
4: uh my name is jesse smith uh i'm a restaurant owner and musician here in atlanta georgia uh, i play in gentleman jesse and with greg previously in the Carbonas.
1: all right so i thought we would start off with y'all's punk rock origin stories right we all have them um how did you discover punk and how did you get into the
2: scene uh it, like a lot of other people who've been into punk and hardcore stuff i got exposed to it Uh, through skateboarding I mean I think I saw like rock and roll high school on TV when I was like eight or nine years old and then like so I you know but I didn't know the Ramones were a real band or anything but um yeah I started skateboarding around nine ten years old started picking up Thrasher magazine and the musical coverage you know was I, I was interested so I um my parents were pretty cool people and they were always encouraging me like with my interest in music and stuff so uh they had bought me a guitar and um they would buy me albums so i started picking up like punk albums when i was 10 or 11 starting with the sex pistols shortly thereafter with like black flag and circle jerks all the things you could easily find at the time in the mid to late 80s my dad would take me to shows when i was about 13 he he would go in with me he saw danzig my mom saw corrosion of conformity with me and bad brains <laughs> So yeah, that's how it started for me. It was
4: not through skateboarding. My parents were musicians like um and liked like rock and roll and things like that. So I was always had an interest in music and um I started I was in like middle school and I had heard Metallica and then quickly grunge stuff started popping up for whatever reason my parents were really into college radio so we they would we would just listen to college radio and so not listening to mainstream music was sort of just part of the culture, like heavy metal and alternative music, it quickly, you know, somehow you find out about Fugazi and then you backtrack from there. So that was one of the first quote unquote punk bands I heard was Fugazi. But I think I heard Black Flag within the same week. And once that and then when I found out Fugazi was minor threat members, then it just kind of snowballed from there. And I had zero interest in quote unquote alternative music after that quickly after that my first concert was the Ramones which kind of to tie into the alternative thing Frank Black was the opener doing like right when he started off as a solo musician when you're like 13 or 14 you hear punk rock then all of a sudden you're like well I'm a punk rocker Um, and so yeah little else mattered from then.
3: I grew up in a really small town in Iowa in the southwest corner of the state across the river from Omaha Nebraska. Skateboarding was kind of the introduction, like there was a, a corner, a block away from my junior high that was called Smoker's Corner. And uh, all these like metal kids would hang out there smoking cigarettes. And uh, I and I have like very clear memories of seeing uh, like Metallica metal up your ass T-shirts and um, the Misfit Skull and just being kind of intrigued. But just like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to skateboard, but I'm not going to be like that. But it was a very slippery slope. It went down a deep, deep rabbit hole. There was a record store in Omaha called Drastic Plastic. Drastic Plastic still exists as like a merchandise company, and they and they put out like classic reissues of albums now. But I used to hang out there like every day. Every time I got I could get into Omaha, I was like there, and uh, my friends and I would go up there after school and skateboard around the neighborhood and by records but there was a guy who worked there and i know i've given him a shout out in a lot of different uh podcasts but his name is tim moss and he's now like a road manager for like the melvins macedon i'm sure i annoyed the hell out of him just asking him all these questions and he had there was like a box full of promo cassettes and he gave me um black flags who's got the ten and a half the first dinosaur junior album bauhaus swing the heartache and like locust abortion technician by the butthole surfers and like i took all these home and just like digested them and
1: so did you ever have a desire to pick up an instrument
3: yeah i did and i was in a couple of bands early on probably one of the biggest mistakes i ever made in my life but i just didn't have the patience for it like i could never do what i wanted to do but i always got good attention from writing like when i was in school i'd have to write things like that or you know essays that you'd have to read out loud people always really reacted very like well to that but the first thing i kind of wanted to get us into um is how did the two of you guys meet like i i, I always encounter these records when i'm uh out at whatever record store like quadiliacha the Casabone red all these kind of like old atlanta like punk records so there's there's like a deep deep history with both of you guys but how did you how did you meet
4: you know, Greg is a couple years older than me, and you know he played in a band called Qualiacha, which I feel like played every single like somber reptile show and played with every you know being like a kid from the suburbs listening to punk rock. you hear like your're you're, you're kind of like typical like modern punk at that point, which was like your lookout records or your fat records and stuff like that. and it seemed like Qualiacha was always on those bills, so that was, that name kind of like always resonated with me. And then at some point I actually got to hear Liacha and uh, made a point to go see them. And they played a show at a record store called See a Timeless Records. And like I had been like listening to their music at that point, And it was just like, this is this band is rad. And finally got to see them. And I remember people like jumping off the cassette tape shelves and stuff like that. <laughs> it was pretty wild. And then i um getting involved in like the DIY scene, like hardcore scene of the nineties and starting to go to shows at like the I house and the Driver Dome. And one of my the first shows I went to was to go see a band called Fuckface. <laughs> and I remember Greg being there uh and I'd be like, oh shoot, that's the Qualiacha guy. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and so, you know, I was a fan of Greg's before I was ever a friend of Greg's from being into his band. So um and then you know it's a DIY music scene, so it's really easy to meet the people that you're like you that you're fans of their music so it kind of i don't remember how it happened but eventually it was just like oh yeah greg
2: yeah we i think it was i mean i was aware of like casa bone red and all that stuff but i don't know that we actually met each other i i think it was at least when you were doing some soviet station before we actually ever met I think i remember talking to you at a party but we may have known each other already at that point but you know late 90s i guess mm-hmm.
1: was it really a club scene or it sounds like it was the diy house show scene uh, yeah. at this time so um i'm interested in the environment like the scene at the time so was like the atlanta punk scene a house show scene at the at this time
2: there was a pretty big house show scene at that point i guess around like the mid 90s maybe the somber reptile There was there was some kind of like falling out with a lot of the bands that played there and the, and the people that ran the club and around it just there was already house shows happening, but like that was, that had been the main place where there was a lot of shows, at least from my perspective. And uh, then around that time, just, there was a, there's a place called the driver dome over in grant Park, I think, yeah, or Ormwood maybe, uh, which was the guys from car versus driver's house. There's a place called the godless red, which I briefly lived at in a uh, home park which was down the street from the i to Phi house, which was also in home park, which uh Gavin, who did the radio bomb radio show and he has stick figure uh, distribution had, that was his house and um and then there was a lot of other th- that was mostly i guess more oriented towards like hardcore post hardcore kind of bands. There was more like punk kind of houses that were happening too. there was like the crack house, which was down on boulevard going towards like the penitentiary the west end warehouses like uh, of metropolitan that was huge because there was like it started off with c11 a bunch of people got inspired by that and then all of a sudden there was like three or four different warehouses going in the same complex that had shows there was half pipes and stuff a lot of parties that was that was a pretty fun era (laughs) and that was like to me that came a little bit later than all the house shows like and it was Less uptight and like there was less of a straight edge element, I guess, more fun. So, Somber Reptile, uh, I believe that opened up in like 1992. It was off Marietta Street and it was right around the corner from the rec room. I had been playing a band since like 1990 or something and playing. We would play this place out in the suburbs called Milo's, and that was the only place we were able to get into or play somebody's basement or whatever but the somber reptile like when qualiacha started up that was like the place that was happening and that would have been like nineteen ninety three for us so it was like a you know kind of a hole um and definitely some sketchy characters ran the place and um probably we didn't get paid very often playing there but uh you know there was they put on all kinds of shows there I, I Jesse was mentioning all the like suburban fat records type bands played there definitely that but there was also like buzz oven played there chaos uk played there like uh who else Assuck, uh a bunch of like early 90s hardcore bands like cop out failure face (laughs) across the board like it did there wasn't like a theme to the place you know it was punk stuff but it was you know all kinds of stuff you know
4: they also had a record store in the basement
2: yeah this guy's called dan and dave punk who had a radio show <laughs> at southern tech and um they had the store and they put on a lot of shows there too i don't know what became of those guys
3: i saw king jongo at somber reptile and uh i saw four hour Fogger at four hour yeah um, i think i saw leech milk at four hour i think it's there used to be the Parasite House as well. That was another show that was Yeah, kind of,
2: that was later on, I think.
3: Somber Reptile was was kind of... I was new to the South and still trying to figure out, you know, how different this place is from the Midwest. And um, driving down there, it was like, this is a kind of a scary neighborhood. Um, but I never... Yeah. I never. I mean, I thought maybe I might get hepatitis if I touched the surface too much. But... Um, it was it was an interesting place. I remember going to see. I think Chris Connolly from the Revolting Cox was doing a solo show there, and uh, we pulled up and he was like standing outside and we're like, "Hey, Chris Connolly!" He's like, "Yeah, we're not playing. The room is insufficient for our power needs." <laughs> oh, okay, I guess. All right. <laughs> Squaresville. I tried to hang out there as much as I could when I discovered that place. Um, i remember when i was brand new in town electro sleep international uh was was kind of hitting hard and they played over at squaresville when i was still pretty new in town and i think they played with Eraserata. it was a really cool show and then i remember going back to see that band bane play there and it was packed and i remember standing in the kitchen feeling the floor just sort of like waver and i'm just like this is something we're going to read about on the news here pretty soon. Like this house is going to collapse and all these punk kids are going to be maimed. Uh, but it never happened. But I also remember Roby from mile marker did like a puppet show there. Uh, I so saw, I saw all kinds of cool stuff at squaresville. And um, years later I went to the, that kid, Blake who had that band called dead in the dirt uh, was leaving town and he had a house over over on that part of town I don't know if that was like reynolds town i think you would call it or taco town or uh not yeah, taco town but um i went to he was having a yard sale before he moved and i hadn't been over there in years and uh i was walking down the street i was like this looks kind of familiar and then i saw the house i was like that's squaresville and there was a trash can in front of squaresville that had like locust stickers and like Flame game and three one g stickers it must be the place yeah i was like this belongs in a museum and then like <laughs> during the pandemic i got a job delivering books for acapella and i delivered a book over there and the trash can's still there so i wanted to talk to randy about that it's like we need this for the uh emery rose punk
1: yeah. yeah there you go for that's part of the <laughs> punk collection so yeah. big trash can <laughs> Both of y'all were playing in bands, so how did how did the Carbonus, like, come together? It sounds like y'all had played in a million bands before that happened.
2: Yeah. Um, well, the Carbonus, Jesse came in a couple of years into the band, but we started playing after the breakup of another band called the Rabies Babies, and the uh, guitar player of that band uh, wanted to start a new band, and uh, he's, he, he and some other guys decided to call the band Carbonas and they were originally going to get like a, a female singer and it didn't work out. So, uh, they, I was like the, like, Oh, well, I guess we'll just get Greg to do it. And, uh, so that was the only other person who was in that lineup that ended up being in the band the whole time was Dave Ron, the drummer. So it was me and Dave and this guy BJ and, uh, Jer- this guy Jeremy Thompson. And within a couple of years, B.J. quit pretty fast and we replaced him over time with multiple people. (laughs) And um, then Jeremy decided to move to Chicago about, I think, 2003. And we had just recorded like half of an album with him. We were kind of sweating, like, you know, trying to figure out who would be a good replacement. And we had a few people who, you know, we thought we would ask and Jesse was on the list. We knew him from you know, some Soviet station and paper lions and just, he was a cool dude around town or whatever. So, uh, I think Clay just went ahead and popped the question to him without consulting anyone else. <laughs> and, uh, it was you. It was, it was me. Okay. Yeah.
4: I think, I think, um, I don't know how I got on the list, but I, I remember being, we were at like a rock night when they had those at MJQ uh-huh. and I, I don't remember who was DJing. Um, and it was a really weird time in Atlanta where like any, idiot with records could dj at mjq on on a random night but um i think that carbona's had play, maybe played like some random show with paper lions at some point maybe at the earl or maybe it been like a corndog or or something like that so we had like played shows together even though it wasn't like paper lines was definitely not in that scene um but i remember being at mjq and we were just like you know that's where all the like miscreants hung out on rock nights you know um And so, you know, at that point, we were, like, bar bar friendly. You know, I think that Greg kind of assumed that my interests were more into post-punk, which they were for the most part during that era. So I was really into, like, Gang of Four and Wire and all your typical stuff. But um, somebody played a song that was on a Kill by Death compilation by the kids. This is rock and roll. And I was just... Drinking beer and and I go ooh or maybe that's what got me on the list in the first place uh, <laughs> was I go oh this song rules and Greg was like you like the kids and I was like yeah this band rocks or whatever and he was like huh and so it might have been like a week later um I mean we were it's Greg and Clay were always at MJQ on a rock night and so was I you know it was just like and I, I remember like being like hey Jeremy's quitting I thought it was you Greg but Jeremy's you and you know Jeremy wrote a lot of the the early Carbonas sort of hits. He wrote Six Satisfaction, if I'm not mistaken. He did, yeah. Which, you know, could be the one of the greatest Carbonas songs. So that's yeah, great. One. And I think that they were like, okay, Jesse likes the kids and he is like the singer in a band. So he probably writes. So maybe he could help carry some of that weight.
1: Well, and it sounds like you've been around for a couple of years at that point. Um, most bands in the punk scene, right? They come, they bloom, they disappear. So Yeah. Let's was... say that we had
2: bloomed yet at that point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a long-lived punk band, right? Definitely. We were around longer than Beatles, I think. In the
2: end, we were around for about eight years. So it was a pretty long run.
3: I, I kind of want to add that... Um the era that I think Carbona's were really um, hitting the hardest, you you guys persevered an awful lot. Um, you know, it seems like there was a national spotlight that was really shining on Atlanta at the time as, say, like Black Lips and Deer Hunter, Snowden. Uh, all these bands were kind of like on the ascent. And Carbona's was right there with all of that. And I no, and we I, you know, I
4: mean we were there, but we weren't on any sort of ride. <laughs> well, you know.
3: I mean, if you were to ask Bradford from Deer Hunter, he would say yeah, that you guys were all part of the same music scene sure. growing up. I mean we were, um, yeah. But I always thought Carbonas existed sort of outside of that kind of feeding frenzy that was going on. Um and then in in its own way, sort of a whole new feeding frenzy kind of erupted around you and I I think I have very definite memories of seeing the spits or seeing like Jay Retard play at the Rob's house show uh over in East Atlanta and I would have never known about any of that music had it not been for like following the Carbonas and kind of the, the whole world that existed around that um but I wanted to bring it up mostly because uh what I mean what was it that you think? kept the band going where all of these other bands sort of like, I guess, I guess Black Lips and Deer Hunter are still out there doing it, but there were, there were hundreds of other bands that, that came up and disappeared along the way, especially punk bands. But what, uh, what kept the Carbonus together? Well, we were real deal lifers.
2: <laughs> it felt like we were struggling to keep it together the whole time really <laughs> and somehow we managed for as long as we did I think we believed it, you know after we I think when the lineup really started coalescing when Jesse got in the band and we got Josh you know Clay and Dave were there uh, we we started really believing in the music we, we were coming up with some cool songs and we made some good recordings and you know people were starting to catch on to it so it would have been a bad time to to abandon it you know Despite yeah. whatever, there were some minor personality conflicts and stuff, bad behavior and whatnot going on. You but know? you
3: also had a lot of attention from outside of Atlanta too.
4: This is all like no, this is all like after the fact, like revisionist history. No one liked us. <laughs> uh, we like we couldn't get like when the, the when like horizontal action was having, which was like a big like garage punk magazine at the time. And yeah. porno- pornography as well. Um, when they um, they the, the biggest fest was like the the horizontal action blackout in Chicago, and we never even played it. They wouldn't let us on the bill. We had to play like a day daytime parties. Same thing with the dot dash festival. We eventually played the dot dash festival in New York, but it was several years into it. So we were kind of like nope. We, people did not want anything to do with us. We would, but we would go on tour and there would be like 20 kids that were like, okay, this is good. And they would buy our records. So, I mean, there was enough of a, enough of a push to kind of keep us going, but Mm -hmm. like there, and and locally every once in a while, there was like a show where we would play with like the baseball furies or play with the spits. And it was a big deal because like you have a bill that's like stacked but for the most, like we, you know, we could pl- we would play and your any night at Lenny's or or um, the Star Bar, and there'd be ten people there. So like, you know, we were not popular. We were not like doing good. We you would know, do probably was, have
2: better shows in like bigger cities out, like not in Atlanta. You know, like,
4: <laughs> yeah, there'd you know? be random yeah. things that we would do well, and and um and it was, but we always felt like we were a little bit like a. Like, eh, like yeah i guess the carbonas but like it, it, and i don't think it was until um that um we like rip off records was supposed to do an lp and there was like conflict with that and um and they ended up not doing it and so we i think that we were like on like message boards and stuff like that a little bit maybe we were a pain in the ass i don't know but i nobody nobody oh. really wanted to touch us until Jay retard had moved to Atlanta, started dating Greg's ex girlfriend, and he was like, kind of like starting shit with us and kind of a rival. And then he moves out of town. She goes with them, and they move to Memphis. And then they start a record label. And then they ask us to do a record. And I think that when when shattered when we did a single on Shattered, I think that's when people were like, it, it like we're okay, like kind of with it. And maybe I have a different. I don't, do you feel like that this is like my
2: perspective? I, don't, no, I never accurate. thought of it that way. <laughs> I thought, I don't know. It's hard to remember what records came out in what order to me. We don't the, even, actually, the, the Douche Master single was like a, like,
4: probably. I think around. that's
2: where, it was where people started turning around the, <laughs> yeah. because A, it was higher quality record than any of the other ones we had put out. So mm-hmm. that helped. But uh, so that one came before the the Shattered single that you speak of. But uh, I think those two, both of those records together, I think were, you know, I think people started taking more notice.
4: Greg and Brian scrapped up enough money to put out 200 copies of that Broadway in the Mouth single. And people, we, like no one would put it out. So, Greg was like, I'm just going to do it. And Brian's like, I have a little bit of money saved up. And so they started Douche Master. And then P- Maximum Rock and Roll gave it a favorable review. And that's when things started getting a little bit better for for us. And I think that might have, besides, you know, Jay not feeling like he was in competition with Greg anymore. Um, <laughs> I don't we
2: ever felt that way.
4: <laughs> I definitely think so. Because he would come into shows and like talk trash to us. And then also, he moves out of town. Greg's not a threat anymore. And then, oh, let's put out a Carbona's record. Um, I remember specifically when we played with the Baseball Furies, Jay stood at the front of the stage and yelled, Baseball Furies, at us. <laughs> like, get off the stage. <laughs> so, And then, you know, obviously things turned around because Blood Visions r- was recorded in our practice space by Dave. So right. uh, at least the drum tracks mm-hmm. were.
3: Mm-hmm. But then Ghana Records picked you guys up for that Carbona's record. Or there, there was yeah. one in, in between there?
2: Yeah, there were, the second one came out on, it was the one that was, we had talked to a few labels about putting it out and it ended up just being a friend of ours on the West Coast who had a small label. And he, he was willing to just let us put it out as we, I think that the conflict with Ripoff Records was the cover that we had for it, which I think it's a great cover. He didn't want that cover. So we were like, well, we're going to use that cover. So we'll just find someone else to put it out.
3: What was the cover?
2: uh it's like there's like a claw hand with some, oh, like, some
3: like the records in the background and okay yeah
2: yeah it's cool jeremy made it after no, he left no. the band and uh i think it's a great cover
3: that's the only carbonas record i don't own and i, I owned it and i believe it was stolen and i think i know who stole it but.
1: so i want to kind of go back to something jesse you said about Carbonis were kind of um, better appreciated outside of Atlanta, um, and Chad mentioned that you had a world that kind of existed around you. Do y'all have an idea of what that dichotomy was about why Atlanta I mean, I, I I was not, as I'll say this again, not a member of the scene at the time. But were y'all outside the norm of what was going on at at the time as a band, or what? Do you, where do you think that difference or the lack of acceptance
2: in Atlanta um, came from? I think we kind of had like more of a niche kind of sound, maybe you know. It's probably the main deal. Like when we first started playing, we we were playing shows with like you know, we kind of glommed on to the black lips and, you know, and then bands like Deer Hunter started playing too. And it was none of the bands really sounded the same. And I think that they were maybe a little more da- dynamic in ways that we weren't like we, that we weren't trying to be dynamic at all. So, I mean, that was uh, not part of the, the deal, but, um and I, you know, it's more, I think what we were doing, whether we did it on purpose or not it was sort of more in line with a sort of movement that was kind of coming together around the country, but not necessarily in Atlanta. So, and it eventually, you know, built up a lot more here by the mid two thousands, probably there was more similar type bands as us for better or worse. You know,
3: <laughs> I think part of what made it work was also that it was still like a fun sort of social scene. Carbonas were one of the were one of the bands that I really kind of identified as like a Rob's house band. Um, there's a couple of singles on Rob's house, um, but that was that was like a really intense social scene that I think kind of spun off of. You know, there was like a garage rock scene going on here, uh, a quote unquote garage rock scene. But that was like the local component of it. And There was just it was all of the shows were fun. The parties at Rob's house were fun when they had bands playing in the basement and things like that. And that to me, like it's, it was just, it was a big social thing I think that made it work. Um, There were certain fashion (laughs) aspects to it that uh, sort of were, I guess, kind of coincidental. But the thing, the thing that was always great to me was being able to just go to those parties and know that like, every musician in like the music world that I was interested in was going to be there, like just hanging out. If they weren't playing, they were drinking beers, you know? Yeah. And I think that was kind of, that was kind of what helped that scene grow. I think was just that it had such a huge social component to it.
2: That's definitely true.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I have one quick question to just kind of take it back to basics. I would love to have each of y'all describe the Carbonas. How would you how would you describe them to someone who who has never never seen them or never heard them?
3: You know, I remember seeing um, Carbonas for the first time, and I was told they're a punk band. And, and it's like, what? I mean, what does that even mean? Like, are they going to have like bullet belts and, and spiked hair or or what? And I mean, they, but there there was a little bit of that going on, but not much. <laughs> but the thing, the the, the the things that really struck me about Carbonas. Um, was that the, the music was so fast and powerful and simple and there was nothing in the way of those songs at all uh and, and kind of in the way of like early Ramon's songs worked um uh, and it was it was formulaic to a degree but also Greg's voice was so authoritative and so uh empowering <laughs> when, I, when I saw the band play I was like but it was like nothing I'd ever heard before like it's yes this is punk rock but it, I couldn't be like yeah these guys sound like the Ramones and you know one thing that has always um kind of affected my perception was looking at cover art so when I saw some of the some of the seven inches and things like that it's like the, or the flyers I still have flyers saved here from like Halloween shows that that Carbone has played and there was always like a like an aesthetic like like it almost looked like a Jism record, or there was like a skeleton, or like a skeleton dressed as like a LA death rocker or something like that. <laughs> and it was all photocopied, and it was all very stark black and white, and uh, it was uh, it was super super engaging uh, on a couple of levels like that. And that's probably a long winded way to say it, but
4: so yeah, I like for me like I was a fan of the band before I was in the band, so. I mean I definitely agree with Chad on like that th- there there is a pretty hard aesthetic already there even though the songs ha- were like sort of your three chord punk pretty much you know like as far as like the chord progression progressions but it was really really distorted and really low fidelity um in a way that made that like you were getting into something that was dangerous which I think is a uh, a repeating theme in people who like punk rock, whether or not or, or in heavy metal and things like that, or noise music or anything. That's like, you're like, I shouldn't be getting into this for whatever reason. And then that's the reason why you go a little bit further. So, um, and I felt like when Carbona's came out, it was like another, an, another update to that, even though it was like pretty simple punk rock music. So like, you know, they asked me to join the band. So I like went home and like played along with my records. Like, it was pretty easy. And then I show up at band practice and it's like, here's Jeremy's like, this is how you play the bass. And I go, okay, that's not on the record. Are you hazing me or did you add bass lines or did you just get better at bass? Um, uh, But like, so that there was like some like specific and very like militant things that we adhered to. And it was, you had to down pick and I was like, but I'm playing bass. What difference does it make? You know, it's only one string, you know, like, why do I have to down pick at it? And they're like, cause you have to, it's the, and so I had to learn how to do that. And Dave was learning how to do the 16th notes on the high hats, which was another thing. And some of that stuff was the, like rules that the Ramones wrote. Uh, but we like, those were some things that was like, that has to be done. But as far as like explaining the sound, it's very like rock and roll punk kind of like done more aggressively and, Uh, a a lot of like higher frequencies like the guitars are really like kind of brittle and skeletal sounding in a way that is kind of like ear punishing (laughs) so those were like parts of the aesthetic that made it like and I think that's why we didn't necessarily have it was purposeful but we didn't necessarily have the like accessibility that a band like the Black Lips or Deer Hunter did because we weren't pleasant to listen to <laughs> um and purposely so it's like you're getting into this music that was even more aggressive and you know at times the lifestyle had mirrored that where it was just like how uncomfortable and awful can everything be <laughs> we found ourselves in some low moments uh there but i mean that that was part of the sound
2: too I don't know if I have much more to add. Those are pretty good. Uh, (laughs) I'll just say we were, what we were basically, I think going for, yeah, it was like certain like obscure kind of bands that we liked, you know, like killed by death or like, you know, weird European bands that no one's heard of. And, but we wanted to give it like a hardcore sort of urgency that a lot of the punk bands, and like garage things, bands that called themselves garage punk or whatever, did not have. We definitely were trying to push that angle to an extent. So,
4: yeah, You know, another thing that was really important to the Carbonas that I like, I don't know that a lot of people recognize. And it had to do with the musicianship because we were trying to be, even though we were trying to play music that where most musicians are like, they're not good at playing their instruments like there's things that we did like i said like the down picking in the 16th notes that were difficult and J- J- bringing josh on who knew how to play guitar solos was important to our sound and then you know we greg was coming into song practice with some like wild song structures and we had to like it turned into like this thing where we were like trying to figure out how to make this song work and it started to get that's when we did the third lp and things started to get a little bit more interesting. But the, the, the thing that was important was and that probably helped us like kind of hone our chops was we did a Zero Boys cover band who <laughs> if you don't listen to the Zero Boys or, or just like listen to them on like a very basic level, you're like, oh, kind of punky and har- punky hardcore band. You know, they got some hooky, more catchy punk songs, and they got some fast hardcore songs. But those guys' musicianship was insanely good, and we like learned their music every, like every one of their songs, and could play it pretty much to a T. And we were a pretty phenomenal Zero Boys cover band. There was no need for that to exist, but we did it. We did fun. it for
2: Halloween in New Orleans. We did a show in New Orleans for Halloween as the Euro Boys. Yeah.
3: But if I, if I could just add, though, one of the things that I always found really compelling about the Carbonas tension was the two. Like, I always thought of you two guys in particular as bringing very different songwriting styles to the group. Um, you know, songs like, like, Greg, you wrote Blackout, is that correct? Yes. Why My Schizo? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. And Jesse wrote Phone Booth. Greg usually had
4: the bulk of the ideas and like if I would bring in like riffs and stuff like that and then we would try to like finish stuff together or I remember you bring in particular bringing in um didn't tell you a lie on the third LP You'd be like hey I have all of these ideas help me <laughs> put it together or whatever and so it's like turned into this puzzle but I definitely feel like that that was when we were at our best was like we had riffs that were a little bit more interesting and and, and ideas that were more interesting.
3: Riffs and ideas that were a little more wild, and trying to fit them into this uh, very rigid style that was was established at that point. I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at in the two different song song approaches that are kind of on display here.
4: And Um, it also seemed to me, forgive me if I'm wrong, but Greg was like seeing our musicianship get a little bit better, so I feel like he could like be like, "All right, I'm gonna throw some more at these guys," (laughs) and like both riffs. (laughs) That, like I'm a schizo, it's just like, hey
2: Jesse, you're gonna have to play this. And yeah. like, oh shit. All right, let's do this. I, could I can write all go. this music at a you know a really slow p- playable pace and be like, okay, but you have to speed when you play it, you gotta speed it up.
1: <laughs> but that's actually a really important part of punk, right? Yeah. Is you start out not being able to play your instrument yeah. very well, but as you go, you get better and better and think. And things change, and so do you feel that y'all had
2: that process
1: in uh in Carbonus?
2: to a degree, but honestly, by that time we'd all been musicians for so long that I think we probably like re- like dumbed down our musicianship at first, you know to an extent <laughs> to play that stuff, and then like you know kind of built it back up <laughs>
4: by by the end of the Carbonas, I felt like we were pretty well oiled machines but also yeah. playing a show was like a little bit torturous because of the down picking. Just being like, Oh God. Okay, here we go. Uh, there was, a, you know, there was a uh, Ramones like DVD for something. I can't remember what it was, but at the end of it had a, 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 um, Marky Ramone drum lesson. And he goes, a lot of people think that the Ramones were crappy musicians or whatever, but you tried doing this for two hours. And he just like hits the high hat. And, uh, and I'm like, that that was the rule, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, people are like, oh, the Carbonas are just a bunch of idiots. And it's like, yeah, but we really put a lot of energy into this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing I wanted to talk with you guys about is that you both gave each other your monikers, Gigi King, Gentleman Jesse. What's, how, how did that happen?
2: I came up with the Gentleman Jesse thing for uh, the frothing at the mouth single. I gave everyone like a fake name on the back of it. And I wanted Jesse to have some kind of like wrestling sounding name. So he was <laughs> Gentleman Jesse Gentile.
4: <laughs> I didn't give Greg his name. His parents did. Yeah. I mean, Greg, Greg's full name is Greg Giles it. King. So I just said, you should, you should call it Gigi King if it's your solo
2: record. Cause, uh, Cause I'm a, a, a natural born Gigi. I got to use it. <laughs> 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 can't ignore that kind of thing.
1: So, Carbonus comes to an end, sort of. Chad sent us an article from 2009 that said, Carbonus last show, and y'all said, "Mm, maybe. So, (laughs) what was that the Carbonus last show in in 2009?
2: It wasn't. Uh, I think we... I don't remember the dates anymore, but I believe we ended up playing, like, a couple of -of out-of-town shows. That may have been our last show in Atlanta. No, it wasn't, because... we ended up playing when our, our original guitar player and our friend BJ passed away. We were playing like a, we were going to play a, a benefit for him for his, he was in hospice and he ended up passing away right, right before the show happened. So it was just ended up being more of like a memorial for people to hang out. That show happened after that fucked up show, I believe. And then we played like a fest in California. And I know we played a fest in Richmond, Virginia around that time too. It may have been before or after that, but it was all a bunch of shows all at once that all got called our last show. (laughs) I think No Way Fest might have been
4: the actual last show because Josh was in New York at that point. And he came down and met us there and played.
3: What was that? What was that festival, Jesse? No Way Fest. Okay. I remember when that happened, and I remember being kind of sad that I couldn't be there, uh, knowing that that was probably going to be the last time on show. But then just a few years ago, you guys played a show at the Earl. Um, we played as- two
4: times at the Earl because there was um, – so these were yeah. technically reunion yeah. shows, but um, like um, we had booked the New Bomb Turks to play. And, uh, one of them had, one of the members had like a medical emergency and had to cancel the show sort of last minute. And so Damon was like, will the Carbonas do it? And so it worked out that we could. And so we played, uh, we literally had to rehearse at, at the Earl to sound check. Um, I think that maybe the four of us had gotten together or something like that somehow, or maybe, I don't remember the logistics, but it was like, so we ended up do, playing that show, and it felt like the Carbona show that we always deserved playing the mess around. Um, yeah, and then there was, there was a couple more reunions because Goner asked us to do sort of a compilation with odds and ends and stuff like that. And it turned into that double LP, and so we played a couple shows to go with that.
1: And then were y'all doing other, as they say, other musical projects at the time? Or did your, did G.G. King and Gentleman Jesse come in after Carbonus?
2: Uh, Gentleman Jesse was concurrent with the Carbonus, <laughs> right, towards the, uh, t- the end of it. <clears throat> I was in a band, I, was, I played drums in a band called The Frantic while the Carbonus were happening. and then. Uh, but I didn't start doing G.G. King stuff really until Carbonus were gone. Like, but like, pretty much immediately because a lot of the early Gigi King material was like leftover stuff that didn't get used in the Carbonas. So it's kind of how that ended up starting, and then it sort of evolved away from that.
3: It's. Kind of, I, I have a very clear memory of meeting you, Greg, at Lenny's. Uh, I used to just kind of randomly go in there. Just I would go. I would make it a point to not see who was playing, and just sort of show up there. But I saw you playing drums with the Frantic one night. And that was the first time I ever met you. Um, but I have kind of a hazy memory of one of my birthday parties at five two nine and was that the first Gigi King show? Yeah was it a, the first Radfest? fest?
2: It was because we and we didn't really have a I didn't have a band or like a set or i had we had done like that first single and Jesse played on that first single. Mm-hmm. and uh we'd i had written some a few more songs but like so we kind of had to throw something together and it was like a sketch like adrian barrera played guitar and that was the only time he ever played guitar for us and uh who old, I guess, But
3: you you
2: played guitar too i played guitar yeah i tried to play guitar when we first started playing and it i gave up on that <laughs>
3: I remember before the show, you was you were talking to me about it, and you were almost apologizing. Like, I'm not a very good guitar player. So <laughs> is, not, yeah,
2: um, I've never practiced was, enough to to be able to be good at singing and playing at the same time.
3: Yeah, I, I, was, I mean, it, it was it was a fun show.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we did. I think we did like three originals and three covers or something like that.
3: <laughs> but I remember the first time I interviewed you for Creative Loafing, you talked about it, it was it, I think it was when that. Uh, the third self-titled Carbonus record came out. Um, uh, you said that every time we record something, we hate it and we never want to look back. Uh, so we just move on to the next thing. Yeah, it sounds uh, about right.
1: I was going to say, is that kind of what, how the, how the projects that you're working on now came about is just keep, keep moving ahead. This thing's wrapping up yeah. and keep moving ahead. Is that how, is that how
2: it came about? I would say so. Yeah.
3: At some point, uh, Jesse s- shoved a seven-inch in my hand. We were, we were, I was at a show somewhere, and you gave me a seven-inch, and it was the "I don't want to know" seven-inch, and uh, I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> this guy's got this whole other thing going on." And then I remember seeing you play in the Rob's house basement. I don't, I don't. I'm probably, I'm sure I saw you somewhere else, but I remember that that lineup. Um, on that seven inch played at the Rob's house basement once. We and did. It was like, like, yeah. This was a whole new chapter Justin played naked. I remember. The, <laughs> I, I think I've seen Dustin naked at least two, maybe three times, but on stage. I,
4: yeah. I, but, uh, more than I could count, you know? Um, <laughs> I mean, it, with, with that project, it was, um, I, I, I wanted to do, you know, I played bass in the Carbonas, but I was a guitar player first and so I just wanted to play something – like do something that it was – where I was playing guitar and pro, and and I guess fronting it too because I was always a front man. Um, so mm-hmm. I was like I'm going to do a side project, you know, um, and I think I wanted to do something probably closer to what The Frantic was doing um, that was like kind of like herky-jerky, punk, like kind of like some of those like post-punk influences that I was talking about before. Mixed with like the kill by de- death aesthetic, and yeah. I was—I te- w- I remember sitting outside of the Star Bar and telling Dave Ron that I wanted to do that, and he go- and he just goes, "You should start a power pop band. I'll play drums." And so I was like, uh "Okay." And so I just tried to write a couple songs, and you know, I, there there's like a demo, you know. And looking back, it's pretty—it's pretty, uh, pretty basic and not very it's not good but um but it kind of just went from there and turned into this thing where it could and i tried to start a proper band where it was going to have a band name and like normal stuff you know and i could never find anyone that wanted to like commit to it and so that's why i just was like you know what screw it i'm gonna call it gentleman jesse after greg's (laughs) <laughs> what he deemed, you know, named me on the back of the Froggy Mouse single. And just that way I had, there's no strings attached to the musicians and I could just keep going forward and get whoever I wanted to play at any time. So th- there's definitely been a revolving door, much like Gigi King. Uh, you know, the Gigi King stuff, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of editing that would happen in the Carbonas and it was a lot of like, you had to, like a lot of filtration. So it was like to get a song to be, Deemed legitimate. It had, you know, at the end of they had to go through Greg and, and Dave, who were the founding fathers. <laughs> you know? So, um, and so I, I think by the end of it, even Greg was uh, just over how much that had to happen. And it, it started to kind of feel like the creativity was getting stifled because of it. And so Gigi King was like, you know, I, I remember being like some rejected Carbonas riffs. But I like, and I think that's also, you know, helped turn Gigi king into what it is because there's so much exploration that happens in those records and i got a hot take here but i would be willing to say that the most recent Gigi king lp remain intact is better than any carbonus material that was recorded so i can say that as a person you, who was a fan first
1: well, so that that brings up that y'all both have new records out right um jesse yours is a little newer than greg so Um, tell, tell us about your new records.
2: (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, Our record's called Remain Intact and yeah, it doesn't really feel that new anymore. It came out at the beginning of the year, but it had been recorded like between like 2018, 2019, I think. So, but, um, yeah, it's one of those things. It, 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 it felt really good just to get it out there, but now I'm I'm starting to write some new stuff and ready to put it in the rear view mirror. (laughs) So, so that's still
1: recording stuff and hating it and moving on still, uh, yeah. still, uh, same, still applies. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. I, I, I mean, I just, I, I was like, okay, I need, if I'm going to keep doing this, if, uh, you know, cause it's all about me, you know what I mean? I want to be, I want to be, I want to say I like it, you know? Um, cause there's no other reason to make music at this point. You know, I'm 41 years old uh like it's never made me any money uh it's not going to like you know it's thankless shit i don't like picking up amps you know uh i don't like trying to orchestrate uh grow, other grown up schedules like there's no reason to be in a band <laughs> you know um so i uh, you know for, to make like like something that's like okay i made i i am happy with this as artistic output is the only reason to do it. So, I mean, that was a big thing. And so like trying to have songs that had lyrically a little bit more going on to them. um, And then not like, you know, I think that there's hooks in the record and I think it's a very catchy record, but I don't think that it's, it's intended to be less single use more. I can revisit this more often because the hooks aren't like so much like eating cake. You know, so hmm. um, and I wanted to be able to be like, OK, I did some stuff where I put, you know, I similar to what Greg's doing, honestly, is just feel like I can give myself the freedom to play whatever I want to and not have to second guess it for uh, listenership. You know what I mean? I don't care if anyone likes it anymore. So um, not that we ever <laughs> that was any impetus for us previously because as i stated no one liked our shit for a long time so yeah it's just more about being able to like put be push push the borders out just
1: a little bit so i can continue to do that in the future so punk and diy are more than a musical genre um it's kind of an ethos that becomes part of your life or for a lot of people um, how do you see being involved with the punk scene influencing um, your lives in your careers, musical or otherwise?
2: Probably influenced my lack of a career. in a good <laughs> <way>. <laughs> 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 Which is no, you know, it, I, it, I've come to a point in life where I enjoy what I do. I'm try, even though I'm trying to change what I do now, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I, I never concentrated. I worried much about defining myself from a job or anything like that. And I and I also, at the same time, didn't make any money from doing music or anything, which is, you know, that's punk rock for you. I don't really know how to answer that, to be honest with you. It's a tough question. Uh, you know,
4: like I, like I live down the street from Greg uh, and we see each other pretty regularly at, um, at this point, whether or not we're just like going out to have dinner or whatever. Um, drinking some wine at his his house or whatever. But he he like being in the film industry. He learned a lot about carpentry and whatnot, and he's turned his street. You can see it on the the insert for for Remain Intact, where the lyric sheet is a drone um, taking a picture of them laying on the street and all Greg's crazy graffiti, which he's been doing since he was a, <laughs> a young man. And and so it's like he's t- he keeps adding on to this stuff, and it's... um.
2: I'm a thorn in the side of my neighbors.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and it's the most beautiful thing. It's it's almost like punk rock paradise gardens yeah. over there um, between like, like what he adds on to his house and what he keeps doing. And then what he does to just the neighborhood, <laughs> <laughs> which he creates gardens in like, like uh, or like uh, he made a park in an, in a, in the, space across the street from them, even though he has no ownership of it. And it's kind of become a source of contention, but definitely thorn in that guy's side, (laughs) but it's, uh, as, as you know, uh, being able to enjoy those spaces is, uh, pretty remarkable. And, and, uh, he's aging with grace. I'll tell you people, (laughs) Um, I'll, I'll say for me professionally, you know, like the thing that punk rock teaches you is no one can tell you no. Um, and so like going out there and trying to like, you know, we, me and like Brian who ran Douchemaster, opened a restaurant about eight years ago and, uh, and you know that you don't think about the risk that's involved with something like that and, and what you're, what you're putting at stake, but we just, it was like, there was no way we couldn't, we ha- we just had to do it, just the same way we would have to put a record out. Um, you just figure out how to do it and make it happen. And so I think that those ethos made that to where we felt comfortable, or just not even, or just like I guess dumb, <laughs> just wanting to just risk everything to do this
1: thing. So I think punk rock helps with that, for better or for worse. <laughs> All right gentlemen that's a great way to wrap this up uh thank you very much for joining us today i really appreciate it thank you thank you if you ever find benji let me know
3: yeah thank you for having me and thank you greg and jesse for uh, coming on and and having this conversation
0: behind the archives is produced by Lily tarot nick twimlow and jacob chisholm who is also our editor music created by sister sigh we are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Jesse Smith, Chad Radford, Gigi King, and Randy Guew. This series will continue over on Atlanta Intersections in December and January, as Randy interviews Upchuck and Neon Christ. For more information about Rose Library and other podcast series, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. Follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media, and please, share with your friends. You can find Behind the Archives on all your favorite podcast feeds. Join us next month for my interview with English PhD candidate at the University of Delaware and an alumna of Emory University, Monet Lewis Timmons, as we talk about Black women building their own archives.